Uh, you and I will go to great lengths to get the things that we want. You and I will go to great lengths to get the things that we want. It's, it's how we build up our lives. We build our lives, our homes, our very existence by seeing things that we want, and then we go to great lengths to get them. You saw a career that you wanted. So you went to school, you took on debt, you studied hard, you got the degree, you got the job. You went to great lengths to get what you want to build your life. You saw a particular girl that you wanted to be your wife. And so you talked to her friends, you texted her a ton, you went on some dates on the course of time, you eventually bought a ring, you showed up some money for a stupid expensive party, and you made some promises to each other, and then you're hitched, you're married. You saw what you wanted, you went and got it. You saw a new piece of technology that you just had to have. And so you saved up for it, you, you checked different prices online, and you spent weeks convincing your wife that her life would actually be better if you got a brand new watch. Until eventually she said, I don't care, just get it, stop talking about it. You decided that you wanted a healthier lifestyle. You saw some of your friends who were fit and they were happy, so you joined CrossFit. And you get up early every single morning at 4.30 a.m. to do burpees with a bunch of other people. And you brag about it all the time on social media. And sure enough, over the course of time, you've lost 25 pounds of all of your friends. <laughs> this is how we build up our life. We see something we want, and we go to great lengths, and we get it for ourselves. That's how we build up our lives. But the distinction I want us to make as we close out this conversation about being an irresistible community of faith, is this. That is not how God builds his church. Churches fall out of irresistibility and into unfaithfulness in mission when they wrongly think that the same way I've built up my life is the same way that God builds up his church. I saw what I wanted, I went out and got it for myself. And if other people want God, if they want Jesus, if they want grace, they can come here and they can get it. That's not how churches grow. That's how churches die. When they put the onus and responsibility and the burden for receiving the gift of Jesus onto other people. In fact, the mission of the church flips that entire notion on its head. And here's how God grows the church. God grows the church like this. When the people who have Jesus go to great lengths to share Jesus. When the people who have Jesus go to great lengths to share Jesus. Look again at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking about his, his personal sense of mission and ministry that's applicable for the entire church. Look what he says in, in chapter 9. Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself, I'm willing to become a servant to all, that I might win more of them. In other words, Paul says this, I will bear any burden by servants to bring blessings to another person. In particular, I will bear any burden, I will be a servant so that I can share the blessing of Jesus with another person. Now Paul's sentiment is beautiful, but Paul really shouldn't get all the credit for it. First of all, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second of all, he saw this on display in person in the word of Jesus. What Paul is describing there is, is the dynamic and the shape of the gospel message. 
said, makes a similar claim to Christianity in that God can be known, God can be experienced, and God can be present in your life. All religions share that claim. But how you know God, how you experience Him, and how He becomes present in your life is where they all differ. Every other religion says if, if you want to experience God, it's just like everything else in your life. Go to great lengths to find Him, get Him, discover Him. It's on you. You wanted the TV, you went and got it. <laughs> you want Jesus? Go and get it. Christianity is different. And imagine for a second that, that, that all of spirituality is essentially a mountain. And God is, is at the top of the mountain, and everybody else, all of us, we're, we're down at the bottom. And the goal is to get closer to God, to get up to Him. What, what every other religion says is, God is up here, if you want to make your way to God, just climb up the mountain. The Eastern religion essentially says, climb up to God, go get Him through enlightenment. Uh, Islam and Judaism actually have a lot in common in that they are religions largely uh, of moralism. Which say you can climb up the mountain, you can encounter God by adhering to the Torah or accomplishing and living out and embracing the five pillars. You want more of God, more of the divine, climb up the mountain. Even secular humanism, which is kind of the religion of our day and age, says if you want to experience something close to the divine, what you need is to actualize yourself and help advance the human race. And you can climb up the mountain and you can experience all of those things. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message doesn't say, come and get it. The Christian message is this. God's at the top of the mountain. We're all at the bottom. And God comes down the mountain to us. All the way. He doesn't ask us to take a single step up. He doesn't call us to the top in any way, shape, or form. He comes down to us. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus took our flesh and came down to us. And he lived with us, like us. He he suffered and died like us. He rose from, from your grave and from my grave. And then everything that he earned, he doesn't hold it out as a prize. He gives it away for free. He says it's totally free through faith. He, he bore the entire burden, came all the way down the metaphorical mountain. He, he bore the entire burden to give you the entire blessing. And so it makes sense that the people of God, the people who have received this gift of this God who doesn't say, come and get it and get the spirituality and the connection to the divine that you deserve. No, but that comes down the mountain. But the people who receive that, we mimic that and we mirror that. And we, we become servants. And we say, I, I will bear whatever burden to bring the blessing of God, the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, to the people around me. That's what God and Christ has done for me. And so that's what I, as a recipient of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, will do for others. It makes sense, right? Now, just because it makes sense doesn't make it easy. Living this out Paul's attitude is a really hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do for, for a lot of reasons. But let me just give you examples of why this is hard. It is, it is hard to say, look, rather than ask everybody in the community to come to us, we're going to go plant a new church where the people in the community are migrating to. That's hard. Um, convincing 
men and women to be missionaries or pastors or full-time ministry people who will give their whole lives to the service of the gospel, a lot of times getting rewarded in lesser ways than they would in the marketplace. It's going to demand all of them in a worldly sense to reward them far less than they would get otherwise. That's, that's a hard thing to convince people to do. If inviting your friend to church, rather than just A, assuming they have a church, or B, waiting until they ask if you have a church, is an awkward and hard thing to do. Changing things that you love about your church so that it might connect or make sense or resonate with someone who doesn't even yet care about this church or attend this church it is a really hard thing to do. This is not easy. To say, I'll bear all the burden, I'll descend the mountain and do whatever it takes. I'll be a servant to those who aren't even here yet. So that they might love and experience what I have. That is really hard. It's difficult because it demands a sacrifice. A sacrifice primarily of things like preference and privilege. Those are hard things to give up. But again, look at Paul's words. Look at Paul's words. Now in verse 20, Paul says this. To the Jewish people, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jewish people. When he says win, he means present them with the message of undeserved mercy in Jesus Christ. To those under the Jewish law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law, the Torah. To those outside of the law, the Torah, non-Jews, I became as one outside the law. He's talking about Gentiles. Not being outside the law of God myself, but under the law of Christ, which is love. That I might win those outside the law. And to the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some of them. Remember Paul's background. Paul began his journey in Christian scriptures, where we pick up his story. Paul, Paul begins as, as a Jewish man of distinction and of accomplishment and of violent persecution against the church. And then Paul encounters the resurrected Jesus, and he, he becomes a follower of Jesus, receives the gift of forgiveness, and, and he becomes the primary pastor and church planter of the New Testament church. And then Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I, I went to the Jewish people. Now remember, he had become a traitor to his own Jewish people. And he says, that didn't stop me. I, I still went to them, even though I was a traitor to them. And I did what I could to befriend them and love them so that I might share Jesus with them. And as a man of Jewish heritage, even though he'd become a Christian, it was so scandalous, I'm sure, at some point in his own heart and mind, to interact with Gentiles, non-Jewish people, in any kind of intimate way. And yet he says to the Gentiles, I went to them, and I befriended them, and I did whatever it took to share Jesus with them. And as a man of accomplishment, he had earned the right culturally to distinguish himself from the weak and the poor and the needy. And yet he says, I, I didn't play that card. I, I went to the weak and the poor and the needy, and I befriended them, and I loved them, and I did whatever it took to share Jesus with them. Whatever, whatever preference or privilege... Paul had about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, he set those things aside so that he could share with the people around him the main thing, which is the person and the work of Jesus. 
you've been a follower of Jesus for any like measurable length of time, like I have, you and I, we have a lot of privilege and a lot of preference. A lot of it. Now you may not think you have privilege in this place, but, but to be able to come into a Christian church and feel comfortable and kind of know what's going on, you, you have something that most of the world doesn't. To, to know a bit about the Bible, maybe all you know is a bit, that's still more than most people. You know something other people don't. To be able to come to this place and have friends, you have connections that other people don't. You, you've walked through ups and downs, tragedies, struggles, joys, and pains, and yet God has allowed you to hold on to your faith, and that's an experience that, that most people don't have. Those are all cards in your proverbial deck that you could play, points of pride to hold on to. Likewise, you and I, we have preference about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We, we like the music to be upbeat, but not too loud. We like the preacher to be funny, but not silly and irreverent. We like, um, we like the coffee to be strong and the handshake time to be short. We like it when guests show up, but not when they sit in our seats. Well, we like the church to, to challenge us in terms of, of giving and serving and growing, but, but not really disrupt life for us. You have preference. And yet irresistible churches are filled with people who have all the privilege that we have, all the preferences that we have, who are willing, like Paul, to say, I, I will proactively set those things aside so that I might be able to share Jesus with the people around me. And that's a really, really difficult thing to do. Now, let me just kind of take your pulse really quickly. When I say that to you, that we, we have to set aside privilege and preference in order to reach your neighbor who doesn't yet care about this place, like you care about this place, or love the Savior that you love, what, what does that do to you? How does that make you feel? Does it bother you? Does it, does it energize you? Let me be like very honest with you. And if you're a guest this morning, you have to understand that this whole series we're in is, is kind of inside baseball for us as a church. We're, we're entering into a season of, of incredible opportunity and um, uh, growth for us. And we're trying to prepare for that. So a lot of ways, this is kind of a family discussion that you've, you've stepped into. And for that, I apologize. But I think it would be beneficial for you, too. What if us, as St. Mark, go to great lengths so that other people can have what we have means that we have to, in some ways, while still being faithful to what it means to be Christians in worship, redesign what happens on Sunday morning in worship so that if there's any stumbling block at all to the outsider, it is simply and purely the offensive nature of the gospel of grace and nothing else. Not the way in which we talk about it, like the words we use, not the way in which we sing about it and, and, and praise God for it, not the programming we do or don't offer for our kids and for ourselves who need to grow in it, but all those things we made sure were as palatable and understandable and as engaging for the outsider as possible so that the only offense would be the gospel. As God tells them that you do nothing yet get everything. Well, what if it means that 
in order for us to go to great lengths to share what we have, in order for God to build up His church, what if it means that the most knowledgeable among us and the most experienced among us see Sunday morning as a place to worship and then serve alongside friends for the sake of the outsider rather than worship and learn alongside friends with no engagement to the outsider. What if that's what it meant? But what if what if it meant that those of us who, who have means and resources and influence or power, money or opportunity that other people don't have, what if it means that in order for us to go to Great Lakes to, to share what we have, it means that we ask even more of you so that we can expand the reach of God's kingdom just a little bit further? What if going to Great Lakes so that other people can share what we have means that that you, you open up your home, not come to the church, but you open up your home on a Monday night, which I know is the bachelor night, like I get it. Like you open up your home on a Monday night to friends from the neighborhood and friends from church with the hope that they might connect with each other. And your friends from church can influence, love, and serve your friends from the neighborhood. Like, like what, if, what if that's what it means for you? for us. That is, that is not an easy thing. It requires a sacrifice, a preference, a privilege. But it's the shape of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might be wondering, why do you want somebody to do that? Why would they serve more when they're already slain like a dog on Monday through Friday and coaching tea ball on Saturday? Why would they give more when they're already giving up on a vacation that they would have gone on and not giving more to the church in the first place? Why would they invite more when they've already invited people in their inner circle and not got to switch to the outer circle? Why would we change more when, when enough stuff has changed? And I like it the way it is. Why would we do all that? Why would we do that? Here's why. I think it's two things. I think it's, I think it's because of great gratitude and great love. Great gratitude for the people who have done the same for you in order for you to be here. And great, great love for Jesus. We don't know a ton about Paul, but one of the things you can see in his writings is that Paul is grateful. Paul is grateful for Jesus who had appeared to him and sought him out and won him. But Paul was also grateful to the other disciples that welcomed him and taught him, and at great risk to themselves, loved him and lifted him up to being equal with them, at great cost to themselves. Paul knew that he was who he was because of people who come before him who sacrificed a ton. And, and maybe you've never thought about this, but, but if you're, you've been at St. Mark for decades, or if you've been here for like five seconds and wondering what you got yourself into, no matter what end of that spectrum you're on, you are... You're able to be here because of somebody else who came before you. You're here because of parents who drag you to church every single week and make sure you're baptized, catechized, and in the car by eight, even though they wanted to sleep on a Sunday morning too. Did you know that? You're here because somebody invited you, even though it was awkward for them too. You're literally sitting in these pews because somebody else sacrificed something they could have bought for themselves to buy that pew for you. 
find engaging or enjoyable in this church service as it is now is engaging and enjoyable to you because somebody who came before you changed their preference so that they might reach you. Did you know that? That, that you and I, we are here. We have the message and the mercy of Jesus Christ because somebody came down the mountain for you. And, and that stirs up great gratitude in us. And what Irresistible Churches know is that they are here because of others and they're grateful for those others and they take on the responsibility to be the others for other people. And then it comes down to love for Jesus. You love Jesus in the way he loves you. And the fact that he gives every promise to you, even though he demands nothing of you, you, you love him because he's forgiven you. And what do you do when you love something? You don't lock it away and put it on display so that other people can love it too, even if it goes across to you. Did you know that if you were to take all of the world's most, most valuable stolen art and put it in one museum, if you could recover all of the most valuable stolen art, and put it in one museum, it would be one of the largest and definitely the most valuable collection in the world. And if you did that, you would have, I, I jotted some of this down, you would have, let's see, 174 Rembrandts in your collection, you'd have 43 Van Goghs, over 500 Picassos have been stolen. Did you know that? You'd have works by Renoir and Da Vinci. A few years ago, somebody stole Monks of Scream. You know, that one's like this. It looks like a kid from Home Alone painted in oil. Someone stole that worth $75 million. The case could be made that since art is, yes, so beautiful, but so susceptible to being stolen, why would people continue to put it on display at such risk and such cost? Here's why. But when something is loved by you and really valued by you, you want other people to love and value it as well, even if it might come back to bite you or might cost you. And Jesus is the most valuable thing that we as the church have, and we love him more than anything. And so, and so we will do whatever it takes to put him on display, front and center, so people can see him, admire him, love him, and value him like we do, even if it comes at cost or risk or burden to us. I want others to love He loves them. You're, you're probably familiar with Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is the, uh, the financial guru who helps people get out of debt. One of the things he's, he's fond of saying is this. The reason we, we get into financial trouble is because we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't like. What if when it came to our mission as a church, we, we, we took that mindset and we flipped it and turned it inside out when it came to loving other people? Here's what I mean by that. We became known as a community that, that spent whatever it does have, spends whatever it does have, with time, money, energy, to give the world things that it does need, and to bless people that God loves and God loves. Ago, we started this conversation about being an, an irresistible 
community of faith. And we started it by saying that so many of the churches in the West, and that's an that's a important point, so many of the churches in the West have lost their irresistibility for, for, a, for a whole lot of reasons, some of which are not the church's fault. But, but for a whole host of reasons, the church in many ways is struggling to be that church that you see in the book of Acts chapter 2 that was intriguing to outsiders and had favor with outsiders because of the hope that they have, the truth that they told, the way that they loved, and the lengths to which they would go. We are really good here in suburban Houston at building up our own lives. We go and get what we want. And there's a temptation to tell our neighbors the same when it comes to Jesus. But that's not, that's not how God grows the church. We are in a season of incredible opportunity, but some things can't make the trip. We have to set whatever sense of privilege or preference we have at the door out of gratitude for those who have come before us and the love for Jesus who has saved us. Because others have done the same for us. And it's our turn to do that for those who come after us. I don't know what all that means for us. But I know it is what's required of us.